I'm Tash McGill. And I'm Vincent Herringer. And this is The Feed, a weekly wrap of the news, views and skews on New Zealand food, drink and everything in between. The feed is for those who grow food. The ones who make, harvest and forage. Who package, ship and sell food. Most importantly, for those who eat food and like to talk about it. So join us at thefeed.co.nz and now, welcome to The Feed Weekly. This week we discuss the historic free trade agreement with the UK, the new COVID traffic light system, Sam Neill, who's reluctantly putting his vineyard up for sale, a helping hand given to supermarkets, and Tash, you're always busy. What have you been busy with, with this week? Oh, well, it turns out I've been busy having opinions, uh, most of which you <laughs> can now... surprise. <laughs> yes, some of which you can now find on the feed, but I've, I've written finally uh, about the what I see as as effectively a government policy stranglehold on our food system, our food industry, and the future of our of our food industry, because as the as the as the long tail really starts to sting of what COVID nineteen has meant for many of our hospitality businesses, uh, we are going to see not just our hospitality venues closing down, which is starting to happen up and down the country, um, but we're also going to start actually seeing the loss of some of our food culture. And we've spoken about this in little dribs and drabs and pieces, but I really finally felt that it was time to kind of express exactly why and how that's happening. And a big part of it is that um, you know in a in a in a economic decision not dissimilar from kind of trickle-down economics. Um, one of the things that, that the government did as we went into these lockdowns was effectively, instead of giving tax cuts to the big guys, they uh, they just funneled all of our revenue towards them, which meant that while some of those big grocery companies and big food suppliers uh, saw massive growth last year, actually some of our smaller ones, um, it was straight out of their pocket. And what that means for us long term, uh, is 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 not great, I don't think. Mm. So, yeah, I mm. think it's time for the average New Zealander who's passionate about our food to start really thinking and being engaged with what we need to be doing and thinking about and talking about when it comes to our food security, our food systems, uh, and our food diversity as we move to the future. Because we don't want to lose what that means for us in terms of our culture and our identity. Do you think that is a uh, been done with malicious intent, or do you think it's just a byproduct of the determination to restrict the movements of people down to a few key areas like supermarkets? So you know, restricting what other movements people could make into other areas of retail. Look, there's been a bit of chat recently about the optimists and the pessimists in the room. The optimist in me thinks that it was a very reasonable decision, but the pragmatist. Uh, dare I say the cynic in me, uh, thinks that at some point there must have been a discussion or a thought, especially in the economic halls of government, to say what and how are we going to make up the shortfall of revenue that comes from businesses that are profiting and paying and paying tax. And one of the ways that you do that is you make sure that the ones who are guaranteed to be profitable are as profitable as possible and continue on that journey. Oh, so you so, think it might have to do with the tax take, so making sure that the ones that are profitable and paying tax are rewarded for doing that, and that well, happens it, to be the large food mm-hmm. outlets. Yeah, and, and look, and to be fair, it's not necessarily a bad decision, but the totalit- the totalitarianness of that decision, um, it keeps people employed, it keeps cash flow um, by way of wages circulating through the economy. So all of those things are, are effectively good things, but it doesn't take into account what it does to the bigger picture and the bigger food system picture when you actually restrict the way that New Zealanders can make choices about how they eat, about where they shop, about how they even you know can 
construct the meals that they put on their table. And I think one of the places we see this is that now, based on, you know, the last two years worth of data of how Kiwis are shopping, now Mm. those big supermarkets are making decisions about what they do and don't stock on the shelves. And Mm. so we start to see this influence on consumer behavior. And I don't think that it's malicious in any way, shape or form. I think it's the fallout of good decisions made with good intentions that have negative consequences. And we have to deal with the negative consequences before we're left with a historical piece of, you know, loss in terms of our food history and food culture that we can't replace. Hmm. Where would people read such a thing, Tash, if they wanted to find out more? <laughs> if that wasn't enough of my hot takes, uh, thefeed.co.nz forward slash opinion, uh, that's where it is, or you can find links to uh, that op-ed on all of the feed socials. Hmm. Well, there you go. Hey, the, there's, there's one other important thing to point out, Vincent. Mm-hmm. This is episode 20 of the Feed Weekly. Oh, how about that? 20 which, weeks. We've been, <laughs> we've been um, incredibly faithful and delivering these week after week, it seems, for 20 weeks. And I, I think we're getting, we're getting better at it. I'm enjoying it. Uh, well, I'm, uh, here's, here are my observations. It's an awful lot of food news. Uh, and it turns out that when we started this gambit, there was, in fact, a lot to talk about when it comes to New Zealand's food mm-hmm. industry and people. So well done us. Uh, we saw an opportunity in the market. And thank you to every single person that is coming on the journey with us. We have some really big things planned um, for, you know, the next chapter. So mm. bring on episode 21. But first, let's go to the news. An agreement in principle this week to a UK free trade agreement will be worth a billion dollars, wiping away tariffs of about 63% of goods currently exported to the UK from day one. Sheep meat and beef would be subject to tariffs, but will have a quota increasing each year for duty-free exports until the 15th year of the agreement, while butter and cheese would have tariffs reduced after uh, until the sixth year. Dairy exports to the UK alone are worth about $70 million a year to our economy, not to mention wine and other horticultural exports such as honey. With our national debt sitting at $120 billion and the predicted to climb to $185 billion thanks to COVID, our exporters will play a crucial role in allowing us to trade our way out of that debt. Securing high-quality and comprehensive trade deals is an important part of the solution. Well, that, I, I think we should make some comment about that. It is a terrific... Um, uh, agreement, Tash, and I was interested that um, Charles Finney, uh, writing a newsroom, Charles is a, a former negotiator for uh, New Zealand on the international stage, very experienced, and he, uh, he joined the chorus of praise from experts for this deal, and it's come as quite a surprise to quite a few people, and perhaps reflects uh, the situation that the UK is in following Brexit, you know, kind of absolutely friend- friendless and uh, dateless and desperate, as they say. Um, so, um, for little old New Zealand to negotiate this deal in such a hurry, worth, according to Charles Finney, much more than a billion dollars. Oh, uh, absolutely. It's that, a terrific thing. Absolutely. And I think it's really a couple of things to add to that. One, um, it's really important, I think, to acknowledge that uh, part of the UK's desire to make these very amenable uh, free trade agreements with us is because it will help and support their case to find a pathway into the CPTPP, which is obviously a big part of their of their agenda. Uh, and it will also um, 
I think it's also important to point out that we should not take our eyes off the ball. Uh, it's important to celebrate, you know, uh, New Zealand has long been referred to as, you know, a, a colony farm uh, for Britain <laughs> out in the whops of the South Pacific. But I think it's also really important to not lose sight of our trade relationships with uh, Asia Pacific and China um, mm. and, to, and to, to remember that this is a great opportunity, but we need to continue to keep thinking forward um, and not purely relying on those uh, commonwealth relationships you know mm. just broadening the broadening the perspective there well, anyway we've become so reliant on china this is actually a, a welcome alternative i would have thought <laughs> and indeed but you know it's a it's one of those things eye on the short term and an eye on the horizon mm. beef and lamb new zealand have their eye on the horizon they are now taking applications from chefs around the country who have their eye on the coveted role of being the next beef and lamb ambassadors with the ongoing covid19 crisis hitting the hospitality industry hard beef and lamb new zealand say they want to encourage chefs to look to the future and give them something to aspire to this will be the 26th year that beef and lamb new zealand have called for applications for ambassadorship chefs and food service manager Lisa Maloney says that now more than ever it's important to give chefs as much possible by way of profiling excellence within the industry. If you are a chef and would like more information you can find it on our website thefeed.co.nz Last Friday the government announced the new COVID-19 protection framework. There are three stages red, orange and green. Sounds a lot like a traffic light. But all three allow relative high rates of freedom compared to the current alert level system. However, they will also require the use of vaccine certificates for nearly everything apart from essential retail and services such as supermarkets and visiting your GP. Uh, says Marissa Bidois, CEO of the Restaurant Association, a reopening framework coupled with clear targets and supported with the appropriate financial assistance is exactly what is needed to move forward and get our largest city moving again. She's talking about Auckland. The double reassurance payment being made uh, in November is one such piece of the additional financial support, although not specifically targeted to hospitality. Tash, do you think that this uh, assistance that's being promised, is it enough and uh, is it too late? Uh, I think it's already too late for many. Um, some of those decisions are being made up and down the country. I heard of a six-venue group that's gone into liquidation in Christchurch and they're not even in level three lockdown um, as we are here. So so I think for some it's going to be too late. For some it's going to be like water in the desert. Um, but is it enough? No, it's not going to be enough. And we need to think bigger and broader than just cash injections uh, to get cash flow happening um, back into the business. That's going to be one step, but we actually need to think a lot more strategically about how we manage this. Um, there's an awful lot of, uh, now it feels like it feels like I'm giving opinions on every news story today, but I will say this, um, there, is, there is a significant question to be asked about the technology investment and the manpower investment that's going to be, the burden of which is going to be put on hospitality mm. to execute this red, red orange, green framework. And, uh, and so those are the next big questions that I think we'll be diving into as the plan comes together in the next couple of weeks. So potentially significant investment and cost still to come that will need to be be supported from somewhere. Kiwi you actor here first. <laughs> Kiwi actor Sam Neil, but more affectionately known to some as the proprietor, is selling his Gibson Vineyard, the first paddock, as the two paddocks winery looks to grow. It is, in fact, the first paddock that uh, was planted in his uh, two paddocks winery stablery. Um, 
a certified organic vineyard in a rural Otago setting. It's 8.33 hectares and it includes 4.6 hectares of award-winning Pinot Noir vines uh, plus some additional land that could be planted or developed. It consistently yields very high quality grapes and it's a very reluctant sale from the prop but if you are interested you can of course get in touch with Colliers. I'll oh. just I'll probably give them a call straight after this. <laughs> Uh, in a secret four-year operation, New Zealand Truffle Company has set up nurseries and greenhouses at a small farm near Rangiora, run by the company's two shareholders, Catherine and Matthew Duan. Before planting a 75-hectare truffle plantation near Darfield, the entire crop worth $2,503,000 per kilogram will be exported to the lucrative Asian and European luxury food market. And the company said that financial returns per kilogram were expected to be seven and eighty-six times. That's a big range. Seven and eighty-six times that of any other New Zealand crop. Produce is expected to be ready for export from twenty twenty-six. Well, that is a fantastic return on investment if indeed that happens. Uh, truffles are hard to grow. We are giving three lucky subscribers the chance to win a copy of Dish's brand new cookbook, Fast. Just subscribe to the newsletter at thefeed.co.nz and you'll be in the draw with a chance to win. And don't forget to like and rate our podcast, which is now the 20th podcast that we've done, because when you rate and review our podcast, it's easier to find on channels such as the Apple Podcast Network. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Sarah Tuck, editor of Dish magazine. They've just released their first standalone cookbook, and it's a collection of recipes from the magazine going back over several years from their section of fast food, which, of course, doesn't mean, you know, your classic drive through takeaways, but rather uh, food that is tasty, fresh, and easy to put on the table relatively quickly. Now, it's no Jamie Oliver 15-minute meals, um, but they are fast and approachable. It was a great to talk with her about what's happening in the kitchens of New Zealand up and down the country. So Sarah, it's really wonderful to have you uh, joining us. Thank you so much. And really excited about the new cookbook. Now, um, you've released several cookbooks yourself, um, but this one is mm. Branded Dish, which is, of course, a, you know, kind of an iconic uh, food magazine at the moment. Can you talk to us a little bit about the inspiration for this edition and, uh, and what, what people can expect when they open the pages? Yes, absolutely I can. Um, so the book is called Dish Fast, um, and it came about because shortly after I started um, with Dish, which is just over a couple of years ago now, um, we put a reader survey out, and we've done a couple since then too. We always kind of try and keep um, in tune with what our readers are after. And uh, when we did this survey, the um, single most frequent thing that came back or the, the most important thing for our readers was, was recipes that were quick and easy to make. Um, recipes that didn't need um, lots of, you know, obscure ingredients um, that still looked and tasted fantastic, but um, but were achievable in a, in a short space of time. Um, so, with that in mind, we did have we had a section in the magazine at that stage um, called Easy Every Day, which had been around, I think, just about since day dot, uh, and it had had a couple of different names during that time, but. Um, so given speed was what people were looking for, we renamed it at that point, um, Food Fast. And I did get a couple of grumpy people at the time saying, why have you got a fast food section? <laughs> you know, and then they go, no, no, it's not fast food, it's food fast. Um, but yeah, so we changed the name to, to um, Food Fast. And uh, around the same time, I guess because I'd already published a couple of cookbooks, I could see that 
I felt in my bones there was an opportunity to to put a collection of food fast recipes together in in a book at some stage. And um, to that end, um, I made the decision then to start shooting it all on the same background so that so that for two reasons, one, so that it would have a, a really cohesive look in a book, ultimately, but also so that um, people could recognise it instantly whenever they picked up the magazine, you flick through it and you know that when you hit that background, you're at Food Fast. So so that's essentially, that was the the, the um, initial idea. And then from from then on, so for the last two years, we've been shooting every Food Fast section on the same background with, a, with pretty similar lighting and styling um, so that we could, yeah, put a book together. Can you define fast? Because, you know, there's been several cracks at the cracks at this in the in the market, obviously. You know, the iconic Jamie Oliver, you know, 30-minute meals that became the 15-minute meal. And, you know, there's is, is, is fast about time? Is it about simplicity? Like, what does that mean to the average Kiwi home, do you think? Yeah, okay. Well, some of these are faster than others. So they're not – it's not dinner on the table in 10 minutes because – Basically, that's unrealistic. And I am, you know, fabulous as Jamie Oliver is, and I do adore him, you know, 15 minutes and 30 minutes, unless someone has pre-chopped all of your stuff, um, is not that achievable, you know what I mean? So so what this concentrates on is um, a combination of, um, you know, quick prep, um, sometimes using, you know, store-bought things instead of having to, you know, make your own so that you've got um, ingredients that you can add without having to kind of um, put them together yourself first. And in terms of fast, some of it is the is the putting together of the dish and it may take longer to cook, but the actual prep might be really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, it is dishes that are literally on the table, you know, in 20, 20 minutes, half an hour. So it's, it's a bit of a range. Um, uh, and I, yeah, I think with the idea that um, the dishes are um, as simple as possible, but still, you know, um, really big on flavour, making the most of seasonal produce, which is obviously just such a no-brainer these days. Um, but things that are, um, you could happily serve um, to guests in in, uh, in most cases, or in all cases. Um, and I think one of the things that um, makes them so um, so accessible for people too is the way we photograph them which is in such a really clear way because we also know that a lot of people um struggle with the plating you know they can they they read a recipe and they put it together and say well why doesn't mine look like the picture (laughs) um so we try and get you know get very specific really good close-up photos so that people can see how it should look on the plate um and so even though it's quick and easy it still looks and tastes amazing yeah Mm. what uh is the book essentially for do you think you know somebody who's already subscribed to dish or is frequently picking dish up in a supermarket or is it for perhaps the person that you know, occasionally looks at the magazine, but actually they love the idea of having a collection that's in a book that they can, you know, grab off the shelf and go back to. I think for both, definitely. I mean, I think for regular readers, um, you know, it'll be an absolute godsend because so then I have to go back through every magazine and think, oh God, which fast section was that in? Um, and then they'll have, you know, all of our favourites. It's not every single recipe that we've ever done because it's it's already got over 100 in there. It's 240 pages long, but but it is, you know, all of our favourites from the fast section. So I think regular readers will just be a really nice super convenient uh, way of getting to the recipes. And then I think it's got a huge potential for people who've never picked up a dish in their life, let alone, you know, even the ones that buy it occasionally, uh, who just aren't that familiar with it. Um, And I think when people see the book, 
uh, they'll see that it's um, like of international standard. It's you'd be happily expect to see it anywhere in the world. It's it's beautifully put together. Um, the recipes are clever. You know what I mean? They're interesting while still being you know quick and easy. Uh, so I think yeah, I think it's got huge potential. Mm. I, you know I. I fully expect it to be under every Christmas tree this this year for someone. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and one of the things that I really hope with it is that we'll reach, um, you know, a slightly younger audience as well because uh, that's one of the things that we've been aware of with Dish and uh, with all magazines tend to have a, a slightly older um, uh, readership and that's you know globally. Um, and a lot of the people these days, a lot of women in their kind of 30s um, haven't necessarily learned to cook at their, you know, mother's side, like like I, you know, well, actually I didn't because my mother was a terrible cook. Sorry, mum. But a lot of women these days, you know, don't cook that much. So I think it's a really nice, accessible way for them to start getting into cooking too. Is it, it doesn't have that kind of... And I should say that so it was terribly sexist to me, men and women. <laughs> Uh, so uh, you know talk about that talk a little bit about you know do you have to be do you have to have some sort of kitchen skill set to pick up a cookbook like this or is it something that actually someone could have some confidence picking it up and going yeah okay I can figure my way through this there's because there's a lot of complexity that goes into creating a recipe in a way that it can be you know read and interpreted and used by you know just anybody yeah god no look if you can use a knife and a blender you're pretty much all good I mean, it's it's they're they're really straightforward, and and that's one of the things too. You know, I think um, it's not um, in in a COVID world that we've been living in for a couple of years now. Uh, during the first lockdown, we we you know all experienced the the way that people were embracing things like making their own sourdough and um, kimchi and you know all sorts of things like that. Um, and there was this this beautifully romantic notion around um, slow cooking and um, you know crafting things, you know. And in that vein, you know, there's been fashion that's come out that's cottage core and all of that kind of thing. And I think there was a there's been a real interest in um, you know cooks who live on the land and they go out and they feed their chickens and they come in and you know bottle their whatever. But the reality is. Um, as time has gone on, I think that has waned a little bit, and uh, it's it's really inaccessible for most of us mm. to to you know if, to cook like that. It's really a bit more of a fantasy than, than what our real lives are like. So for me, I see I see food fast, dish fast, as being real food for real people. I mean, you know, actually what you're going to do, you know, rather than um, that the fantasy of what would be perfect in an ideal world. And I, I think from that point of view, it's going to be incredibly, you know, timely and valuable for a lot of people. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about food snobbery then? Because, you know, obviously. Oh, God, bring it on. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're right in, in some respects, you're right in the forefront of it, right? We're, we're in being in the business of um, writing about food and putting recipes in front of people, you know, on a monthly basis and, uh, and, and also being, you know, in a listening position to hear that kind of demand that people have. I'm just really curious about your, your thoughts on it. You know, is, is, is food snobbery uh, continuing to creep into to New Zealand culture or, or are we, you know, holding the line? Is it something that we need to be concerned about? Well, I think I, I suppose, like anything, it, it's a it's a very uh, personal perspective. Uh, it's hard to to say that there's any kind of na- national vibe um, alongside, uh, you know, along with uh, food snobbery. But 
from my perspective, these days we are so fortunate to have such incredible people doing amazing things in hospitality, doing, you know, really exciting, innovative, complex things. F- from my perspective, that that's that's where I enjoy that style of food, mm. but it's not the style of food that I necessarily want to make for my friends and family. I, you know, so um from a from a snobbery perspective for me I mean and you know I mean I'm the editor of a food magazine so you'd expect people to have you know high expectations that I'd be you know slapping weird ingredients into everything and making everything very technical but that's not the way I cook at all I mean I you know so I I feel like I haven't remotely answered your question but I'd like to encourage um people to move away from the idea of uh, a food snobbery I think you know, for me, food that's not tortured, that still retains, you know, uh, original flavour and texture, that's seasonal, uh, that's, um, you know, simple and, and just really makes the most of the produce that you have is, is my favourite way to cook um, rather than, you know, trying to be too too, too complex or too, you know, um, I don't know, high-end about it, I suppose. Mm, and where do trends fit into that? I mean, I'm sure you probably remember, um, you know, I feel, I feel like I've, I've walked through these seasons where um, everything was about furikake seasoning or everything was about harissa paste yeah. or everything was about yeah, zatar yeah. or, you know, it just, you know, we go through these little modes and these phases where um, ingredients or components of a dish become the thing. Um, is that something yeah. that's still happening at the moment? Is that a trend? Oh, yeah, it's- I think I think that will that will always happen as as new things people you know start to experience different things like you know Korean food which is um, you know having a moment and and so people become aware of new ingredients and how and new flavors and how to use them and I think that's exciting and I think that should that will always continue and, and I guess like fashion too you know like you'll always have something new that's you know um, it's um, giving everybody you know a new interest or a new take um, a new way of looking at things. So I think we'll always have that. But interestingly, we're also working on our 100th issue at the moment um, of Dish. And it's um, also going to be massive. And it's going to feature one, one recipe from every issue of Dish we've ever had. So 100 issues, 100 recipes, our favourite recipe from every single issue. And one of the one of the most fabulous things about that is as we've gone back over 17 years and picked one recipe from every issue, we've been able to see um, that some some things that had a moment that disappeared have been left languishing and are still absolutely amazing and fabulous. And so, uh, you know, I think it's it's great to think about what's the newest thing, but also not to forget about all those lovely, you know, classic combinations that we've learned along the way that still taste incredible. You know, we, we had this moment the other day when we were shooting um, a smoked chicken salad with, you know, with um, mango and those crunchy noodles and uh, like a, a satay style dressing and holy moly, nostalgia overload. It was delicious, you know. And, you know, there's, there's people these days, my kids would never have tasted that because it was kind of b- before their time, but it's still bloody great you know flavors and textures and you know so yeah I think I think um what's in vogue will will always uh, you know have a moment and that's great but I think um you know we we, we should collect those moments and and uh not kind of discard them mm. do you have a particular favorite recipe from dish fast that you that you're just like this is the one that that you're cranking out at home all the time 
Yeah, there is one actually, and it was quite early on. And I'm going to see if I can find it in my. Uh, I've got the PDF of all of the sections on my screen. Um, and oh, where is it? It was in from the seafood section because, and this is one thing that's wonderful. These recipes are all from Claire. Um, and one of the things that I enjoy most about working with her is that um, we have slightly different strengths in terms of our recipe development. So she's an absolute master when it comes to fish and seafood. So I always uh, learn from her enormously uh, when it comes to that area. Oh, okay. So I found it. It's called, it's just called grilled fish with caper and red onion dressing, which sounds, which sounds pretty mundane, but it's basically um, just the most sensationally, very quickly cooked fish, whatever is the freshest that you can get. That's the most available. Um, and then you make a dressing with um, just a little bit of oil and vinegar and garlic uh, and capers and uh, red onion and parsley. And that's really just uh, like a little quick, vinaigrette style dressing and then you just heat um you know cook the the fish in a little bit of butter and spoon this fabulously sharp um kind of slightly crunchy from the red onion capery deliciousness dressing on it and it is spectacular i'm actually salivating i've got I have to swallow because it's so delicious. That's that's so fun. That's that's remarkable. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the sections that the book's broken into you know what can people expect when they pick it up and open it um well it's uh broken I can read them I've got I've got the I've got the book um cover in front of me so it's um broken into sections which are it's eight chapters there's small bites meat chook seafood veg you can see it's pretty relaxed uh, pasta and grains salads and sides and sweet so yeah and there's quite there's a lot of recipes in there that are, are quite a few that are vegetarian and that are gluten-free and you know so we've kind of tried to cover all bases there so that people uh, you know can find something for everyone basically mm. is there is there a certain if there's one thing or one or two skills that you think everybody should have when it comes to uh being confident and walking into the kitchen and picking up a recipe book and grabbing some you know going doing a quick shop uh to to make something delicious what are those one or two key skills that you think you know are really important for people to to get a handle on well, well one of my main things is flavor profiles and god i must do something on this again soon i we've we did it we've done something on it before but for me it's understanding the basic flavor profiles and and not messing them up you know what i mean and not not introducing things that aren't going to work in a certain flavor profile but then working out which um what kind of flavors that you're naturally drawn to so whether it's um, you know you know uh, olives and tomatoes and you know garlic and oregano uh, oregano and basil and you know do, do you like those stuff? Do you like um, do you like cumin and coriander and you know aromatics and you know um, so it's kind of working out how flavor profiles work and there's a there's a bloody brilliant book that I've had for years uh, which is the flavor thesaurus and um, it's probably a little bit out there for um, your your learner cook, but it's a, it's a great way of looking at um, different flavors and how they work together. So, you know, I think um, for anyone starting, it's just having a a, li a little basic understanding of um, flavor profiles, uh, and then uh, and then trying some things, understanding what you like about them, I suppose, and then and thinking about how you could go from there once you've got a, a simple starting point. Yeah. Well, a great example of that actually is in the book. We've got um, we've got a one pot chicken dish done with six chicken thighs cooked in one dish. 
six different ways. And it, all it is is about changing the flavor profile, you know, and they all cook for about the same time and they're all completely different for the same starting point. So it's, I guess, a, a really good way to start to get a handle on that. Fantastic. Uh, is there a particular, if you could, uh, you've mentioned that it's all shot in the same way. What is that style? What is what is it about the visualization of the way that you've shot these dishes that kind of speaks to um, either the either that that essence or sense of things being quick and fast and easy, or you know, is it is it more just kind of inspired by what you had on hand at the time? You know, talk talk to me a little bit about the aesthetic. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, it's always about um, you know the um, trends kind of come and go, and there's there has been a trend, you know, that's um, been hanging around for the last six or seven years of you know very highly um, propped shoots and things like that. And anyone who's picked up a dish in the last two years will know that that's not the way. <laughs> that's not how I style things, um, because for me, from a food perspective, particularly if you're not a confident cook, the most important thing is to be able to see the food, to see how it's supposed to look and to make it easier for you. So from a fast perspective, I suppose there's no guessing because you can look at it and see exactly how to put things and, uh, you know, into a dish to make it work, whether that's plating it up um, as a salad or, or a side dish, or whether it's actually even for cooking, you can see exactly how it should you know it, it, we've done it and so you can do it the same way and in fact we've had that several times where we've been recreating dishes from for the hundredth issue and we can literally make them identical because they're so clear you know and easy to see and so I think that gives co- uh, cooks a lot of confidence you know um, they can you know they can go oh my god I made this and it looks exactly like the picture you know what I mean I'm I'm I've I've got it you know what I mean um, as opposed to I well I can't quite see and is that I mean is it supposed to be brown on top or you know or grilled on top or is that you know it's all really nice and clear and how do you go about choosing the cover image is it by <laughs> consensus is it tortured <laughs> sleepless nights uh, talk to us a little bit about, about what's on the cover and how you got there. Well, it's kind of a combination because, um, I, you know, I, I, I tend to approach things with a very strategic, um, uh, in a strategic way. So, you know, the whole book itself has come about because, I, you know, I um, it was made clear that people wanted things that were fast. Uh, then if you take that a, a step further in terms of what people are looking for, it's been known for, um, you know, a wee while now in, in lots of uh um, research that's come out that chicken is the number one um, uh, eaten food, you know, protein on the dinner tables in New Zealand um, and has been growing in popularity for, for several years. So, um, and we know, uh, not just anecdotally, we know ourselves that every time we post, uh, you know, chicken on Instagram or Facebook or um, if I do something on Breakfast TV that's chicken related that, you know, it it really, re- you know, resonates and, and does well. So surprise, surprise, it's a chicken <laughs> dish. Um, and then um, along the same lines, um, you know, research tells us that uh, the number one takeaway in New Zealand is a uh, is a curry. Um, and so we we also know from our sales, uh, one of our biggest selling uh, issues ever was one with the chicken curry on the cover. So we've gone for a, a, a different flavor profiled. Um, this is a Thai rather than, a um, you know, a Sri Lankan, which was our um, magazine cover. So it's a um, Thai style curry. So it's it's things like that. So yes, it, it's so it's a it's a, a light, a really light, fresh um, chicken curry that's on the cover, which is perfect for you know hot weather I remember being um wrapped over the knuckles um I, who was it from um 
Hmm. Once when I when I did curries in a winter issue and, and somebody said, you know, well, curries are from warmer climates and you know they're supposed to be eaten in the in the heat, not in the cold. And I thought, well, I don't I don't stuff that because I know that New Zealanders like a curry, you know, in the winter. Um and uh but you know this this is a lighter, fresher one with you know it's a lemongrass and lime and coriander. So perfect for you know for the summer months as well. Anytime, anytime you like actually. Anytime, anytime curry. I could have called it anytime curry. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I love it. I can just imagine. I can just imagine who it was. Anyway. And so, yeah, I suppose that comes down to food snobbery. I mean, I am, no, I'm probably, I think I'm the opposite of a food snob. I mean, you know, when people talk about um, food experiences, you know, and what they, what their um, absolute best thing that they could, you know, do in terms of going to a restaurant, um, if I had options, mostly I would, you know, go somewhere where it's, it's um, you know, I guess the same way that we tend to cook too, which is like just very real and accessible. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Which is, I think, you know, super important. Um, I, I can't not ask the question. Do you think that how have lockdowns changed or how are we progressing in the way that we cook? You, you spoke a little bit about how in the beginning it was very kind of, you know, everything was slow and it was, you know, because we had all this time on our hands. Now we're, we're more in the swing of it. Um, how do you think, how, how do you think if it is at all, um, you know, this kind of lockdown type um, scenario is has changed or impacted the way that we think about food and the way that we think about food at home? Well, in several ways. I mean, I think... Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, stacked on a few COVID kilos the first time round because we were basically going from the fridge to the table to the, you know, um, one o'clock um, announcement. Um, and um, so I think if, if people were a little bit more mindful of that this time round. I think, uh, you know, the first time round, there was a, I know it sounds weird to say, but there was a little excitement. There was a frisson about the first lockdown, you know. Novelty. Um, novelty factor, which, and you know so people were taking advantage of um you know luxuriating the fact that they could you know do slow things and and learn how to make things from scratch this time around I think people are fed up and I think um have lost that that you know that um the that absolute kind of love affair that they had with those things to start off with and I think um I I suppose one of the things that is, has been a realization for a lot of people is how uh, limited their rotation of recipes is. You know, like that they, you know, when you're cooking all the time, as opposed to you know many people who might get takeaways once a week or eat out once a week or you know have a kind of a combination of things. Um, now, when they're cooking at home all the time, realize that they do really stick to the same you know six or seven things. So, I think um, you know it's an opportunity now for people to expand their repertoire a little bit, but not necessarily with those really time intense, you know, um, recipes that they might've looked at the first time around. And a reminder for our listeners, uh, we have three copies of Dish Fast to give away. So all new subscribers to the newsletter this month will go in for a chance to win and we will be sending them out week on week. This week in 1752, Nicholas Apiot was born. What does that mean? What relevance is that? Well, he was the inventor of the canning process, uh, preserving food by sealing it in sterilised containers. It took him 14 years of research uh, to actually get there, and he won an award from the French government for it, uh, but it forever changed the way that we ate and distributed food products. Ah, the good old days. And I think we're out. 